Obamacare fail, it'll be a lot easier. And I think we're probably in that position where we'll just let Obamacare fail. I'm Dan Diamond. This is Pulse Check, and that was President Donald Trump in July of last year, one of the many times he suggested that the Affordable Care Act is doomed. It's no secret that Trump and his administration oppose the ACA. The Justice Department is currently backing a lawsuit to roll back the law's protections on pre-existing conditions. Oral arguments are currently scheduled for September 5th in Texas. I expect to hear quite a bit more on that case in the coming days. But there's another lawsuit about the Affordable Care Act that we're going to focus on today, a lawsuit that's trying to use President Trump's own words against him to prove that he's failing to uphold the law. First, Zach Klein, Columbus City attorney, will talk about why he decided to join a multi-city lawsuit against the administration. And then Abby Gluck, a Yale law professor, will lay out the broader legal theory behind the case. And Abby should know because she helped come up with it. Just a note that we taped these interviews earlier in August. And just a reminder that if you like Pulse Check, you can help us by leaving a review on your favorite podcast app. Check out our recent episodes with Senator Heidi Heitkamp and scientist Paul Offit, both of which have been among the most downloaded episodes we've ever done. You can find me at ddiamondpolitico.com, and you can find my conversation with Zach and Abby right now. Zach Klein, the city attorney for Columbus, Ohio. Welcome to Politico Pulse Check. Thanks for having me on. Columbus is one of several cities, Baltimore, Chicago, Cincinnati. That's now suing the Trump administration, alleging that the president is failing his responsibilities to uphold the Affordable Care Act. Zach, how are Columbus residents being harmed by President Trump's approach to the ACA? Well, when you look at just the national harm generally, President Trump's uh, premeditated Uh, and intentional destruction and attempts to destroy the Affordable Care Act uh, have driven up premium increases nationwide by 37%. You're now seeing 3 million more people uninsured than the prior year. I know Columbus being the 14th largest city in the United States, we're not immune from those numbers. We have people here that have pre-existing conditions. We have uh, children who are still on their parents' insurance. We have those that are participating in the market. We have Medicaid expansion in in the state, thankfully, because of the courage Governor John Kasich had in expanding Medicaid um, and being one of the hardest hit uh, states in the union uh, for the opioid crisis, Medicaid expansion is our number one tool that we have in fighting that. So all those important elements of the Affordable Care Act uh, are, are at stake in this litigation. So I understand that they are at stake, but what has actually transpired? Has there been damage to Columbus so far? Yeah, so for example, there's a couple examples of injury to the city of Columbus. For example, one, uh, our emergency medical services, uh, we, um, when our EMS goes and picks you up because you call 911 and we transport you to the hospital because of the injury that you have, uh, we um, bill insurance. We bill the insurance companies and typically are able to recover between 40 and 80 percent of that money uh, back to the city of Columbus for the cost of that transport. Uh, if you were uninsured, um, we typically only can cover about 4%. We'll send you a letter and say, hey, please pay this, but we don't have any insurance uh, company to then go after to seek reimbursement from. Um, so the more that there are uninsured, then the less money we can recoup uh, back into the city coffers for those emergency medical 
vehicle runs by EMS. Uh, so the president's actions there by driving up the number of uninsured then hits our bottom line in the budget. It's the same way with our Department of Public Health. We offer uh, an array of services, vaccinations, women's reproductive health uh, services, and other uh, medical uh, services that we provide, we typically all, always try to bill insurance if you are insured. Uh, again, the more uninsured there are, we're not going to turn away patients uh, or per- turn away and, not, and deny those services in the Columbus Department of Public Health. So the more uninsured there are, that's more money that we have to eat and then cannot be reimbursed. So those are two tangible uh, examples of how the city's budget is on the hook and directly affected negatively uh, by President Trump's actions. Though the number of uninsured has remained relatively flat since the Trump administration took over. It may have budged up a little bit, but it remains overall historically low. And the administration has insisted that there are new changes like the short-term health plans, the association health plans, could potentially lower the uninsured rate by getting folks who have been locked out of the ACA market, giving them less expensive alternatives to buy coverage. If the uninsured rate goes down, does Columbus still have a case here? Well, I think when you look at those plans, uh, I'm, I'm not a healthcare expert, but when you look at those plans, a lot of folks classify those as junk plans that, yes, offer you insurance, but don't cover you for anything when you're sick. Um, so when you look at the trends nationally, there are uh, more people that are uninsured that are directly related to President Trump's undermining of the Affordable Care Act. And those are the claims uh, that we're making in court in violation of the Administrative Procedures Act, which, I, as your uh, listeners probably know, is a very archaic but effective um, law about how rules are written about rules, as well as the take care clause in violation of uh, Article 2 of the United States Constitution. So it's those actions that the president are taking uh, that we believe is the basis, um, that is the basis of our case uh, in, in, the, in Maryland against the Trump administration as it relates to driving up the number of uninsured uh, and increasing premiums. And you're filing in Maryland because that's where Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services are. That's CM- correct. CMS. And those those uh, laws that you referenced, the APA, the Administrative Procedures Act, that's about how laws get made and the take care responsibility of the president is, is nominally he has to take care of the laws. He has to preserve them and uphold them. Zach, I've seen some of your interviews. You've said that you spent months preparing for this lawsuit. Can, can you walk us through your decision-making process? When and how did you decide to sue? So um, prior to becoming the city attorney, I was our council president uh, here in the city of Columbus. And me as the council president and the mayor of the city of Columbus for the past couple months um, have been on a citywide tour on the political side of things, encouraging the citizens to call their senators uh, and call their congresspeople uh, to vote against repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act because of what's at stake with pre-existing conditions, Medicaid expansion, children being on uh, their, their parents' insurance. We won that political battle. Uh, and that was something that was important to our constituents and important to us as elected leaders in our community. So once we won the political battle, however, um, President Trump, in a kind of, I'm going to take my ball and go home strategy, you know, went back and pivoted to the White House and has made no bones about it through his actions and his own words uh, that he was going to do everything he can from the executive side um, of what he could not do in closing the deal with Congress and trying to repeal and replace Obamacare. It's in, the, it's in that executive action in his words and his tweets and his executive orders and uh, rules that were written by the Department of Health and Human Services, by the Centers for Medicaid and uh, Medicare uh, Services. Like, 
that is where the crux of this lawsuit begins. So we've, I have been playing in this space because I believe um, that health care is a right. I believe that our citizens uh, deserve to uh, be able to have health, uh, good quality and affordable health care so they can raise their family, that their children should have it, uh, that we shouldn't be discriminating against pre-existing conditions. So when I learned about the possibility of this lawsuit and working with um, other cities and working with Democracy Forward, uh, we did our due diligence because of how passionate and important um, the city of Columbus residents were how I was as it relates to the political side of things on defeating repeal and replace that I felt like we had a, a duty here in the city of Columbus and uh, an opportunity to be a leader uh, on the legal side uh, to hold the president accountable for what we believe are violations of the fe- of federal law, the Administrative Procedures Act, as well as his constitutional duties under Article 2. Just curious, in your legal career, have you ever sued a president before? I have never sued a president, no. Although we, although we are part of um, the census litigation, um, so, so I guess the answer is pro- kind of. You know, we're not the lead plaintiff in the census litigation out of New York. We, we joined, um, but that's not exactly directly directed towards the president. That's directed towards uh, Secretary Ross and the Department of Commerce. So this is, I, I guess, and theoretically, the first time that, that I've ever sued the president. And look, I don't want to wake up every morning and make it a habit of suing the president. That's certainly not something that um, I want to be uh, known for. But what I do want the folks that I represent to know is that I am going to stand up for them, regardless of who the president is, because of what's at stake in health care. And you're also suing to try and save your city's soccer team, which means you've got a lot on your plate right now. There, there is no track record of a case like this winning in in court recently, a case about the president not carrying out his responsibilities, specifically around the Affordable Care Act. Be honest, is is this a symbolic challenge more than a practical one? I don't think so. I think that um, even when you look at the originalist, um, the constitutional originalist, and you think that the words in the Constitution have uh, meaning, that you can't look at the president's actions, his own words, uh, what he has done, uh, and his premeditated mindset, and think that, look, if the take care clause means anything, if it means anything, then this is an example of a violation of it. Uh, so I think that we're making a good faith argument in a real lawsuit uh, to stand up for the health care uh, of health care rights for families across this country, in Chicago, in Cincinnati, in Baltimore, in Columbus, and across the country, um, that I feel like this is a good faith, important, ex- uh, important lawsuit uh, that, is, that is going to hopefully set a precedent, because as you men- mentioned, there isn't a lot of Supreme Court case law or even circuit court case law as it relates to the Take Care Clause, uh, but important precedent of what it means for the president to faithfully execute the laws. And if there's an example of a violation of it, but, and if you believe believe that all the words in the Constitution have meanings and are there for a purpose, um, that even those folks have to recognize that this, this is the example, that if this take care clause means something, this is a violation of it. Let's say you win here. You, you make the case that the president is not fulfilling his responsibilities to take care of this law. What should happen to the president and the Affordable Care Act? Well, I think that some of the rules that have been written um, would be struck down, uh, and those rules... Uh, because they'd be struck down, would be they would have to start from scratch if it was a violation of the Administrative Procedures Act. Uh, and I think you know having a, an order from the court saying that the president violated his constitutional duties, uh, and an order that he faithfully execute the law uh, and try to to work with Congress uh, to faithfully execute the, to change the law where he thinks that it needs to be changed instead of just unilaterally um, trying to undermine it and be premeditated in his in his thoughts and in his actions of how he can wake up every morning and try to uh, undermine 
behind a duly enacted law from Congress. So having a court order that directs that, that hopefully can give some stability to the markets, um, that can stabilize the, the rise in insurance premiums, that can stabilize um, the increasing number of, of uninsured. We've seen 3 million more uh, become uninsured. Having an order from the court do that, I think, is a step in the right direction uh, and one that I think can bring um, some assurances to the public um, that we can make a difference in health care without having the president um, trying to undermine it on a daily basis. Well, we will continue to follow your case in Politico. Zach Klein from Columbus, the city attorney. Thank you so much for joining Politico, Paul Jack. I enjoyed it and hope I can come on again. Thanks, Dan. Abby Gluck from Yale. Welcome to Politico Pulse Check. Thanks for having me. Last year, you wrote a piece for Vox where you essentially laid out this entire case around the take care clause. For instance, you wrote, Trump's obligation is to, quote, take care that the laws that are already on the books are carried out. Since he has flouted this obligation, lawsuits by individuals and states harmed by the damage he causes may now be in order. You're arguably the legal architect of this case that has now proceeded in multiple states. Walk us through the blueprint. Well, that's very flattering. I really appreciate it. Um, The basic argument stems from the Constitution. The Constitution in Article 2 sets forth the president's rights and responsibilities, and it requires the president to, quote, take care that the laws be faithfully executed. I had started thinking about the Republican sabotage of the Affordable Care Act long before Uh, this presidency, but the actions of this president have taken things to a whole new level and really got me thinking about that language, faithfully executed, and what it means. And, you know, I came to the conclusion that it just cannot mean deliberate sabotage. And that is what this president has very openly said he is trying to do with his executive authority to dismantle the Affordable Care Act after he lost that battle in Congress and in the Supreme Court twice. Um, And that's why I think this lawsuit, although a rare kind of suit, it's really the time for it now. Do we even know, though, Abby, if judges would agree that the president's tweets or statements on the Affordable Care Act matter? Didn't the Supreme Court essentially ignore Trump's tweets about a travel ban and Muslims when deciding to uphold the travel ban? The tweeting issue is a very complicated issue. Uh, I think there are two uh, principal differences here. In the context of the travel ban case, whether you agree with the court or not, the court found an independent, reasonable justification for what the president was doing, where it was, whereby it was able to evaluate that on an objective basis and didn't think the tweets were relevant. Here, this president has not ever tried to explain his actions with respect to the Affordable Care Act on the grounds that they were motivated by reasonable, rational uh, desire to support or enforce the law. He has said from the beginning things like Obamacare is being dismantled, or he said we didn't repeal it in Congress, so I'm going a different way. I think motive becomes important there. And there's a second reason, too. Um, a couple of years ago, a bunch of conservative scholars started developing an argument about the Take Care Clause, which has been rarely interpreted by the Supreme Court. And they were looking at the text of the law, as conservatives like to do, and they started thinking that those words faithfully executed have to mean something. And those scholars, and these include Randy Barnett, John Manning, Jack Goldsmith, prominent, uh, excellent conservatives, developed a view that the motive matters when it comes to the Take Care Clause in ways that it might not matter in other areas of law precisely because of those words, faithfully. So I think the tweet issue might come out differently in this case. 
you mentioned those conservative legal scholars. They said specifically that President Obama, who was president at the time, was violating the take care clause because he didn't enforce laws related to punishing marijuana users or even bother to defend the Defense of Marriage Act. In your view, Abby, do you think those were also violations of the take care clause? Well, I'm not an immigration law scholar or a drug enforcement scholar, and I never took uh, a, a scholarly view on those. But I want to make a couple of points about that because it's an important comparison. First of all, they're not exclusive. You might take the view that President Obama violated the Take Care Clause. In fact, uh, there was a Take Care Challenge to his immigration policy that the court never addressed. But if you believe that, the point is that what this president is doing is so much more extreme that it's unquestionable that this president has violated the Take Care Clause. I also think there are a couple differences um, potentially in what Obama did compared to what Trump is doing, and I'll just quickly go through those. Uh, in the context of immigration and the marijuana policy, what you have is a president who is not trying to take down the entire law, but rather enforcing parts of it and under-enforcing other parts of it in part because he did not have a fully funded appropriation from Congress and had to make choices. In this case, that is not what is happening. The president has never said that the reason he is doing what he is doing to the Affordable Care Act is because he doesn't have enough money from Congress. In fact, he is slashing funds that he had. He slashed outreach funds for people trying to help people get access to insurance. Among other things, he cut down the open enrollment period. So it's not a question of enforcement priorities, and it's also not a question of enforcing one part of the statute, for example, higher-level offenders, against another part of the statute. That's not happening. It's killing the entire statute. There's one other point that's worth making. Some people point to Obama's deferral of certain of the Affordable Care Act deadlines, like the employer mandate, the requirement that employ employers provide health insurance for employees or pay a penalty, as another example of the take care violation. Now, again, you can say Obama violated that clause and think that Trump violated it even more, which is indisputable if you thought Obama did. But what Obama was also doing was critically different in one important way that is illustrative for this case. He is deferral of those policies, whether you agree with them as a matter of policy or not, and many people think that was a mistake, were designed to ease a smooth transition to the law. They were designed in the interest of the Affordable Care Act. In his view, they supported a successful execution, implementation of the law in the early years. That is not what is happening here. There's never been an argument from this administration that the actions it has taken are in desire to strengthen, improve uh, or uphold the law in any way. It's precisely the opposite. I think that's a very important distinction worth making. You mentioned conservative legal scholars, in your view, should be supporting the take care case here just as they made the same argument against Obama. Yes or no, have you heard from any of these scholars? Do, do conservatives agree with your point? Well, you know, the lawsuit has just been filed. Um, over the past year, I have had arguments with various uh, discussions with various scholars about motive. And I think there are, I think that many of the scholars who are writing on those issues now, like Barnett, Manning, and Goldsmith, are not actually healthcare experts. Um, I think that they didn't, haven't didn't, had the chance. Didn't Randy to... Barnett help bring a lawsuit against the Affordable Care Act? You know, even though Barnett was an early uh, architect of one of the challenges to the Affordable Care Act, he hasn't been following the act with the same kind of closeness as he's been following other issues. He was very involved uh, in the immigration uh, in the immigration debates, and he wrote actually wrote an issue brief for Cato on take care and the immigration debates. Manny and Goldsmith also are not necessarily health law scholars. I do think that when they do turn their interest to this case, they will find a simpatico 
argument for their arguments about what faithfully executed means and what uh, the importance of motive. So I would not be surprised to see some supportive statements from them. And I would also note, by the way, that the first time around, uh, many conservative scholars refused to come out and say outright that Obama was violating the Take Care Clause. They simply laid out the issue and said it was a very hard call. And I think the reason that is, is that when it comes to enforcement priorities, it's very hard for the judicial system to come in and draw the line and say, a president has made his enforcement priority decisions in a good way or a bad way. This, I want to make very clear, is a very different argument. It is not an argument that talks about the president's discretion. It is not an argument that talks about enforcement priorities. It is a totally different kind of Take Care Clause claim that is about the intentional, deliberate sabotage of an act the president is entrusted to enforce. You've made the point again and again that there are patterns of behavior by this president that would undermine the Affordable Care Act. But you've also acknowledged that take care cases are rarely pursued. And to borrow your words again from the Vox article, quote, it does not appear ever to have been used successfully in modern times as an offensive tool against a president. So, Abby, what are the odds of this lawsuit actually succeeding? Um, you know, I, again, I think one thing that's interesting about this lawsuit at, is that if there's ever going to be a viable case, it's this one, precisely because it does not get the court into the kind of questions that courts don't like to get into, that kind of policy line drawing. Um, I do think there are going to be hurdles. Courts don't like to order presidents in part because courts don't want to give orders that won't be enforced. It undermines the power of courts. So courts are always worried about ordering presidents around. There was a case uh, involving President Nixon back in the 70s in which the court acknowledged the viability of a take care claim but instead decided not to order the president uh, to do anything. It just declared that the president was violating the law. And you don't really know why that is. It is likely because the court does not want to issue a remedy that isn't enforced. That's a, uh, a feeling that goes all the way back to one of our earliest famous cases in Marbury versus Madison. I think this case is different because there are some clear points of redressability uh, that make it easier for a court. The president has uh, issued a couple of rules uh, with respect to the insurance markets very recently. It would not be out of the stream of normal judicial decision-making for a court to uh, say those rules are not valid. Uh, I think the availability of remedies might make this a easier case for take care than usual. But yes, it's rare. It should be rare. And the reason it's rare is that it usually involves the discretion of the president. And because this case does not do that, that's what makes it the outlier case. This is the extreme case. You mentioned the remedies, and this is probably my biggest question. What happens if the plaintiffs win? Given that there might be time that elapses in, in a court battle, and by the time a court could hypothetically side with these cities, perhaps there have been significant changes to the ACA. So how do you put that back in the box? And, and what conceivably do you see the timeline being here, Abby, for possible remedies being issued? Well, you know, the judicial system is not so quick. Um, I can't imagine that we would have um, a, a case that goes up through the courts anytime faster than a year. Uh, this is a different situation. This is not individuals who have a particular health condition and are seeking to get insurance, and that health condition may or may not pass or progress. These are cities that were given benefits under the Affordable Care Act. The Affordable Care Act express expressly contemplates that there will be fewer individuals on charity care. It actually takes money away from states to provide charity care on the assumption that more individuals will be in the insurance markets. Um, that problem is not going to go away in a year. It's just going to get worse and worse. So while uh, 
the cities may suffer while they wait for the case to go through the courts. It's not like the, these problems are going to resolve themselves. If anything, the insurance markets are going to further destabilize, and more importantly, premiums are going to continue to rise until some of these issues can be worked out. And that's a problem that's not going away. So if this case works through the courts and nominally there would be an appeal from the Trump administration if the cities won, the Supreme Court wouldn't pick this case up for a few years. Would the federal government in your mind, Abby, be required then to reinstate things that might have been lapsed for two or three years at that point? Well, it could be. I think it could be in its fastest mode a year, um, it, just depending on how much evidence would have to be taken. You know, there's a difference between cases that rely on a lot of gathering of evidence versus cases that rely on a court's analysis of legal claims. So it's possible that we're not talking about two or three years. Maybe we're talking about a year or 18 months. But even so, what the defendants are asking for, they're not asking for money. The plaintiffs. The plaintiffs are not asking for money. They're asking for a declaration that the president is violating the law. They're asking for an invalidation of those rules the president issued that aim to splinter the insurance markets and raise premiums. And they're asking potentially for an injunction where a court would tell the president, you have to stop sabotaging the Affordable Care Act. That's forward-looking relief. Um, and so I don't think the kind of questions you're raising pose as much of a challenge here. We're talking in August 2018. Can you give us any sense for signposts, things that are coming that you're going to be watching for indicators of where this case is headed? I mean, with respect to this case, you know, we've just we've only just begun. Uh, there's probably or most certainly going to be a motion to dismiss filed by the government. The government will probably argue that the courts aren't even competent to hear this case, that take care clause claims can't really be heard by courts because courts don't have the competence or institutional authority to order presidents how, how to exercise their discretion. Um, then they also will probably contest on the merits um, the various claims that the cities have made, trying to provide some reasonable defenses uh, for the actions that were taken. Um, so that will be the first stage. There will probably be a hearing there, and that will be the first important signpost where we get a sense of where that district court is going, if it's inclined favorably toward the plaintiffs or not. And then more broadly, the landscape for the Affordable Care Act right now, how do you see it? Well, one thing about the Affordable Care Act is, from a legal perspective, it is never boring. Uh, this statute <laughs> is keeping lawyers in business. Um, and and health journalists, too. Yeah. I mean, it's really remarkable. I like to call it the phoenix that continues to rise from the, from the ashes. The Affordable Care Act has been hailed into court so many times. It manages to survive, and then someone somewhere manages to come up with another legal case. There are now a bunch of things uh, on the front or medium burner implicating the Affordable Care Act. Arguably, the most important one, uh, although in my view a frivolous case, is a case in Texas uh, where a bunch of states have come in and argued that without the insurance mandate, that requirement that everyone uh, gets insurance or else has to pay a tax with the zeroing out of the penalty for that by Congress last year, the entire Affordable Care Act should be struck down as unconstitutional. That case is based on an argument that the entire statute was crafted around that mandate and it can't survive without it. It's frivolous for many reasons, not least of which is that we already have very good evidence that the mandate is surviving without it. And we had a Republican Congress in 2017 that made a decision to take the mandate penalty out and leave the rest of the statute standing. That should be enough. However, that case is pending before Judge Connor um, in Texas. That judge has been uh, not so friendly to the Affordable Care Act and is a judge that 
uh, ACA opponents seek out when they file cases. And, and so we're going to be having a hearing in the beginning of September on that case, and that's going to be a very important moment for that case. There are also a few other important legal challenges pending. One is Medicaid work requirements. Uh, a bunch of states have uh, proposed work requirements to um, make access to Medicaid for their population more difficult. A district court in Washington, D.C. struck down one set of work requirements last month. There is now a case pending involving Arkansas's Medicaid work requirements. There are also a couple of cases pending involving states that have decided to disqualify Planned Parenthood as a recognized Medicaid provider. Those are cases that implicate some very interesting legal questions about the rights of individuals to sue to enforce their Medicaid rights. Uh, and those kinds of questions have reached the Supreme Court several times before. Yeah. And we at Politico have been following all those cases closely and breaking some news on, on each of them. Uh, Abby Gluck, Yale Law Professor, thank you for taking time out from your schedule to help teach us about what's happening on the legal front with the ACA. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's it for Pulse Check today. My thanks to Zach Klein of Columbus and Abby Gluck of Yale for joining the podcast and Mikaela Rodriguez for producing the show. You can find Pulse Check on all of your favorite podcast apps. You can find me at ddiamondapolitico.com. You can find a new episode of Politico Pulse Check in your podcast player next week.